just a heads up, I might be singing that song, the second one we sang again at the end. That was a good song. I really like that song. You like that song? Amen. That was a great song. It's not too many ch- songs about the church and how it's a family and how we are to love one another. There's not too many songs out there like that. So a lot of songs focused on me out there, that's for certain. Not good ones I'm talking about. I'm just saying like a lot of churches sing songs about me, but not too many are about the church. That's a gr- I love those songs that sing about how we are to love one another. Well, that was for free. It's not a part of my sermon today. The year was 51 AD, and I want you to imagine what it would be like to gather together with that Corinthian church when Paul, after Paul preached the gospel and many were saved and baptized. Titius Justus, his family and his servants would have straightened up their home and got ready for the church to gather on that Sunday. There Corinthian homes were a lot like this building up here you see on the screen where they were, there was a courtyard in the middle of the property surrounded by rooms and buildings. And so it's possible this could have been the type of area they would have gathered, maybe even larger than this. Titius Justice was a wealthy Roman who had taken an interest in Judaism and actually became a Jewish proselyte, but his life changed when Paul the Apostle began to preach next door to his house. Paul the Apostle went into the synagogue and preached the gospel. Titus Justice heard that. He turned from his sin and he trusted in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He heard how Paul said that 30 years previous to that, the Messiah had come and his name was Jesus. And so Titus Justice and his family probably included his servants, were were baptized. Many other Christians in Corinth, many other uh, Corinthians believed and became Christians. They were baptized too. So I want you to imagine what it was like for this church to gather. I imagine imagine Aquila and Priscilla walking down the road with Paul coming from their house. Priscilla obviously was well-educated. She was a very intelligent woman. She would have had conversations probably with Paul, so I can imagine them walking to come to church that day and her asking all these questions, maybe even giving some of her insight as well. Crispus was a former leader of the synagogue next door, so I would imagine him walking down the street with a scroll you know, that he had that he would use to study, and he's going to bring it to church that day so they could read the Old Testament scripture and, and talk about that. I can imagine as he walked into church and some of the people at the synagogue saw him walking into that home of Titius Justice, I imagine they scowled at him and and he walked in and remembered how he once was a legalist. He believed that he had to be good enough for God, but he heard that Jesus Christ saves by grace and he is the only one who can save. And so he he walks into this, this church. I just can imagine Paul standing up in front of this gathered group of people and just looking out and seeing so many different types of people. Maybe there's a family of idol worshipers in front of him and they would go to the temple of Apollo and the temple of Aphrodite and they would participate in the drunken and moral feast, but now they were followers of Jesus. Or maybe on the other side, there was these legalistic Jews. I mean, they had been kosher from birth, but now they were following Jesus. There would have been poor slaves 
rich Romans, former legalistic Jews, former alcoholics, women of high class, former rabbis, former practicing homosexuals, but now all were gathered submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing picture to think about? Can you imagine gathering with that church, with Paul standing up, leading them? Paul was there for for 18 months. And all those people I mentioned are real historical people and had real stories of salvation. You can read about that in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We talked about that a lot last week. Paul would go into a city. He would preach the gospel. He would baptize those who came to Christ. He would start a church. And then when he'd leave, he would keep in contact with them through letters and pastoral representatives. And one of those letters here is 1 Corinthians. So if you haven't already, would you open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter Paul sent to this church. The first letter has been lost, and so evidently that, church, that letter was not inspired. It was not God-breathed. For some reason, God did not want us to have that today. So actually, what we call 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians. But because it's the first book of, to, the Corinth, to the Corinthian church in our Bible, we call it 1 Corinthians. So we'll just keep doing that. But in this letter, we have preserved for us, Paul instructs the church on how to function as Christ's holy people. So our text today is 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. I'm going to read this for us. I would like us all to stand together, though. Would you stand with me and have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, Paul's introduction to this letter, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you to proclaim and hear your word. So Holy Spirit, please speak to us. Reveal to us the truth that is in this word. And Lord, give us the strength and grace to fulfill that, we pray in Jesus' name. You may be seated. According to the Hartford Institute, 118 million Americans weekly attend some type of church. Now, this was, this was before 2020, so who knows what that is actually today. That's 40% of the population, though. And then in that statistic, I read a footnote that said that they don't even necessarily believe that's the accurate number because people like to exaggerate how much they actually attend church. So, so is that the right number? Who knows? 
According to Ventura County, that's our county, I found this on city-data.com, not Dana, city-data.com, our numbers for church attendance in our city, in Simi Valley, are a lot lower. 55% of residents in Simi Valley are non-religious. They do not identify with any type of religion. So that's 55%. So we have about 120,000 people in our valley here. 29% are Catholic, and only 9% identify themselves as evangelical. And of those 9%, how many actually attend church? How many have actual, actually are part of a church? And what does evangelical even mean, you know, in our day today? We have many in Simi who have never been to church. Some who claim to be a part of a church, but probably don't attend. Some do attend, but they do it to fulfill a religious duty. So, so there's so much confusion in our world, but probably even in our valley, about church. What is church? The Pope has his idea what church is. Televangelists have their idea what church is. Call the number on the screen. We don't have one online there, but they have their idea. Many people have decided that they can define church as sitting on the couch in their pajamas, watching TV. But church was, and it is, God's idea. The question is not, what do you think church is? The question is not, what, what is church to me? Or, or what would you like church to be? Let's, let's survey the community and say, what do you want in a church? And then that's what church probably should be. No, that's not the question. The question is, what is a biblical church? What is God's definition of church? What are the basic elements of a biblical church? And so that's my topic here this morning. This morning and next week, we're going to look at six elements of a biblical church from these three verses here. And so the first element that we're going to look at here this morning is the foundation of a church. The foundation of a church. The foundation of a church is apostolic doctrine. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Like I said, Paul would go into an unreached city. He would preach the gospel, lead people to Christ, baptize them, and then start a church. And then when he left the city, he would write letters and give them biblical instruction. So that's what this book is right here. So Paul wrote this letter with the authority of an apostle. An apostle basically means a sent one. It was a title used in the Greek culture for a messenger who would be sent out by a king or a, a ruler or a governor. This messenger would go out with the authority of that one who was uh, in charge. So he was a delegated authority. And he spoke on behalf of that king or ruler. And so those who heard him were required to obey his words because he represented that authority. That was an apostle. So Paul said he was an apostle of whom? Of Jesus Christ, which meant he was sent by Christ and his words and his letters carried the authority of Christ. 
Now, we have many people in our day and age that claim to be apostles. I heard about a lady, I'm not going to say her name, but she claims to be apostle, leads a church in Los Angeles. I looked on their church website, and she says she started off as a songwriter and a singer, of course. I was thinking, yeah, that's, that sounds about right. She said she went to a conference, and she heard a prophet say to her, I have called you to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. The irony of that, like this one is sending him out, her out as an apostle, okay? You are called to reach the nations. So now she claims that she can do miracles, healings, and so on. I'm thinking maybe she should just come and wipe out the Omicron variant, huh? That would be a good idea? No, she hasn't done that yet, so. But, but the question is, is a lady like that, is that an apostle? And I can say with absolute certainty that she is not an apostle of Jesus Christ. Maybe an apostle of someone else or of another spirit. But because there's three main qualifications of a New Testament apostle. In the New Testament, we see, first of all, the qualification that a true apostle has to be able to see or has seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. So this person has seen the resurrected Jesus. You have witnessed his resurrection. Second, a New Testament apostle had to be personally taught and sent by Jesus. So you had to be taught by Jesus and sent out by Jesus. And third, a New Testament apostle was able to perform miracles, and those miracles authenticated their teaching, that their teaching was from Jesus. So those are the three qualifications. So the question is, was Paul a true apostle? Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There are a number of texts we could go to, but I'll just touch on two. Paul claimed, and then he proved his apostolic office. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, am I not free? Then he says, am I not an apostle? He's asking a question, but he's saying, I am. I'm, I'm an apostle. And then notice what he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So Paul was an apostle because one reason is because he had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. So that's the first qualification. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 23. Here we see the second qualification. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So who taught Paul? It was the Lord Jesus. So what Paul passed on in his letters were the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we could go to a number of other texts and demonstrate this. I'm not going to do that because we don't have time this morning. But the point is, you go back to 1 Corinthians 1.1, you can see that Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it was because he was called by the will of God. So this letter is not just a casual letter from this ancient guy named Paul to this group of people. What Paul wrote was scripture. Paul wrote based upon the authority of Christ. And so he was speaking for Christ, writing for Christ. Therefore, a mark of a biblical church is that it's built on the foundation 
of the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine. Remember, Jesus had 11 apostles with him in the upper room. And he told them, he promised them. He says, listen, guys, when I ascend, when I go to my Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to help you remember everything I taught you, and then you're going to teach my people. You're going to teach the church. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus ascended. The apostles went out. Peter preached. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, people heard the gospel. Many repented and turned from their sins, 3,000 of them. They were baptized. And the Bible says that they, that is those 3,000 people who were saved and then baptized, they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. So the foundation of the church was and still is today the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching was Jesus' teaching. So it's authoritative over the church. I heard a, a, a read a pastor a number of years ago that is a famous pastor in the Atlanta area, Atlanta, Georgia area, and he basically said something like this. He said that we should look at the teachings of Jesus and, and, and ask what Jesus said, but not necessarily what Paul had to say. The problem is that Paul actually spoke on behalf of Jesus. He was an apostle. In fact, Jesus said that you're going to go out Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that what? I have commanded you. And so that's what the rest of the New Testament is. It's the doctrines of Christ written down by the apostles. There are no apostles today, but we as a church are to submit ourselves to the doctrine of the apostles. The apostolic doctrine regulates our worship. What we do during our worship service is regulated by what the New Testament teaches us. It shapes our view of the rest of Scripture. But even more than that, we believe apostolic doctrine should change our lives. It should inform our parenting. It should renew our marriages. It should mend our brokenness. It should help us really make sense of this world. It should really inform us in regard to governments and politics and every part of our life. Apostolic doctrine should be the foundation for your life and for our church. Now, when I say the word doctrine, what do you think of? I mean, you might be imagining some some boring seminary class in a dusty old building with a guy that has a British accent droning on about theology. Now, hopefully you don't imagine that. Might be true. (laughs) But doctrine really is the foundation for life. Doctrine is a part of your everyday life. See, doctrine basically is this. It's what you believe. That's doctrine. It's what you believe. And doctrine is simply the truth about who God is. I should say apostolic doctrine is the truth about who God is, how God works, and what that means for me. Doctrine is is my view of God. It's my view of the world. It's my view of myself. I can remember one time when one of my kids was about three or four years old, and there was a thunderstorm outside. It was in the East Coast, you know, that happens out there. And I told, and you know, she was scared, and so I said, oh, it's God walking around in the clouds. That was a terrible thing to say to her. Because I was actually telling her doctrine, something about God, 
And then she had this view of God that's like stomping around in the clouds, and it scared her. Then she wanted to, she's going to bed that night, and she's thinking God's going to stomp on her, you know? That, don't do that to your kids. But the point is that doctrine actually affects us, doesn't it? It affects our thinking. It affects our, our words. It affects our emotions. It affects our lives. All of us have doctrine. We have beliefs about God. We have beliefs about ourselves. And, and it might be false doctrine. Frankly, most people in the world have false doctrine. All of us have doctrine. And the question is, is your doctrine true? See, your thoughts, your words, your actions are based upon your doctrine. If you're going to write something down this morning, that by me some, might be something to write down. Your thoughts, words, and actions are based upon your doctrine. Your thoughts, words, and actions are based upon your doctrine, are based upon your beliefs about God, about how he's working, about the world he created, and about yourself. Do you realize that the foundation for life is doctrine? You do what you do because you believe what you believe. And your beliefs are composed of doctrine, or what you believe is true. So the question is, do you believe, the question is not, I should say, do you believe doctrine? The question is, what do you believe? Because even an atheist has doctrine. Right? He, might, he might think there's no God, but he functions in life as if he's his own God. So he, but he has a view of God. He has a view of this world. He has doctrine. It's wrong doctrine. Your actions and your thoughts and your words, therefore, reveal your doctrine, reveals what you believe. For instance, if I were to have a snake in here, how would you react to that? If I were to bring it up to you, some of you would be like, oh, cool, a snake, let me see it, you know? And if it was like a gardener snake, some of you would want to wrap it around your arm, and you'd think that'd be pretty cool. Some of you would run out the door, right? And so you have beliefs about that snake, and it informs, therefore, your thoughts and your, your words and your actions. I read a story in December about a guy named Peter from Maryland who had a snake in his house. I read this on CNN. I'm not advertising that, but I'm just telling you that's the source. So you don't think I made this up. And he had bought this 10,000 square foot house for $1.8 million. So he had a snake in his house. He wanted to protect himself in his house. So he decided that he was going to smoke this snake out. So think about the beliefs this guy had. First of all, he believed the snake was a, a bad snake. And I don't know what kind of snake it was. It didn't say in the article, but... He obviously believed it was some kind of danger to him. He thought that smoking a snake out was a way to get rid of snakes. Not the brightest idea in the world. And so therefore, he smoked him out and burned his whole house down. And why did he do that? It was because of his doctrine, right? Not necessarily about God, but what he believed. What he believed informed what he thought, what he did, and consequently, his house burned down because of it. And that's a silly example just to illustrate to you that what you believe will affect what you think and what you do. You do what you do because you believe what you believe about God, about your world, and yourself. Your actions and your words and your thoughts reveal your beliefs, reveal your doctrine. For instance, let's take a doctrinal statement like this. Jesus is Lord. That's true. 
Jesus is Lord. That's a doctrinal statement. It's a doctrinal truth. And if you believe that, then the lordship of Jesus should affect everything you do. It should affect your thoughts. It should affect your words. You know, I think about the psalm. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So if I recognize that he is the Lord and I am not, then I submit myself to him. So I'm careful what I say. I'm careful what I do because I'm submitting myself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, now think about a person who walks around their house and they demand everyone bows to them. You know what I'm talking about? They yell at people. Maybe they go to the store and they yell at people there in their house. They're stomping around. They're slamming doors. And, and they expect people to follow their will. Let's ask the question, what is that person's doctrine? Who are they considering to be Lord themselves? And they might not have thought about it that way, but their actions even their thoughts and their words, reveal their doctrine. And that is that they believe that they are Lord and therefore everyone should obey them. And so my point is, is that it, it reveals your thoughts, words, and actions reveal what you believe. I was in a ministry once and the first week that we were there, they decided to test us. We didn't realize they were testing us, but they decided to have us. We had responsibilities every week called power jobs and power jobs. I guess I think about that now and I wonder why they called it that, but, and, and they decided they were going to have us do these different responsibilities and, uh, and watch us from a distance. And some of the guys and girls that did the jobs, they cut corners. Some of them did the whole like, you know, talking on the side, you know, so like you're supposed to be working. So you have this, you know, two or three hours of working and they're all talking over somewhere else. Some of them rushed, got it all done and didn't do a very good job in the process. And so then they sat us down in the chapel they were very, very picky on purpose for a particular reason. But the leader got up in front of us and said something like this. And it wasn't these exact words. This is like 20-some years ago, so I'm not remembering exactly what he said. But basically he said, did you do your best? Did you work these jobs for the glory of God? One of the jobs that we had was to go around this lake and pick up bird poo. Those are the kind of jobs we're talking about. Jobs that you're like, do I really have to pick up every piece and can I just get this done with or can I make, have other people do it and me you know, pretend like I did it? So this is what we're talking about. And he says, did you do your work for the glory of God? Did you serve with excellence? And it was clear many did not. Many of us didn't. I include myself in that. And then he said something like this to us, your laziness demonstrates what you believe. And he basically said to us, you are a person who believes that being at this ministry is about you. You're serving yourself. You're not serving the Lord. You're living for your own pleasure. You're not living for the glory of God. You are selfish, self-serving, and you're following the sinful desires of your heart. So he let us have it pretty good. But what he was doing was revealing our beliefs. And then this person came back around and taught us apostolic doctrine. So in other words, he revealed our false doctrine, and then he taught us apostolic doctrine. He said that we are to do everything for the glory of God. We're, we're to view every act of, of labor as worship. When we go and we see that poo out there around that lake, we're supposed to pick that up for the glory of God and worship the Lord by doing it with excellence. 
And what do you think happened the next week when we had those responsibilities? How do you think that apostolic doctrine affected our, our thoughts and our words and our actions? And I would definitely say the temptations were still there to do all those things, but it changed us. Doctrine is so important. It's so important for our lives. It's so important for our church. That's why we teach doctrine. We have a class in here that's teaching on evangelism and I think that's it, evangelism and discipleship, something like that. We have a class back here on Sunday mornings that's teaching the book of John. They're teaching doctrine in there. We have a, true trackers for the kids, and we're teaching doctrine. I've had parents tell me before, not here at this church, but in other churches across the world and across the country, I should say, and at camps, you know, I've had people say, why would you want to teach kids doctrine? What? Like, that's the foundation for life. Like, that's how kids view God in their world, and we want them to think scripturally. That's why we sing doctrine. I mean, you know some of the songs we're singing up there? Sometimes maybe you can look at that and be like, why are we singing all those words? Can't we just sing the same word over and over again? It's a lot easier. It's not necessarily bad to do that sometimes, but the, well, we're singing doctrine. We're singing the truth about God and about our world and about ourselves. Doctrine is the foundation for your life, and it should be the foundation for our church. Tonight, the ladies have a Bible study, and they're teaching doctrine. So ladies, come. This will be a great time tonight. And think about how God used Paul the Apostle's doctrine to change the lives of the Corinthians. Look down in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So think about what all that includes. And then notice what it says. And our brother, Sosthenes. Sosthenes. In Acts 18, we learn about Sosthenes. Sosthenes. I think I said that wrong a couple times. Sorry about that. Sosthenes. Sosthenes. Is that right? Sosthenes. Let's have a vote on that. <laughs> Sosthenes. 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 I'm going to go with Sosthenes. I can't remember how I practice it. I listened to it and practice it. But. but think about Acts 18. We find this name, Sosthenes, there. He was the leader of the synagogue. Remember Crispus, he came to Christ, and he was the leader of the synagogue, and then he went to the Corinthian church. And so Sosthenes stepped in as the leader of the synagogue. Think about what Sosthenes believed. Sosthenes believed that, that he had to be good enough to be able to earn God's favor. He had to follow the law. And, he, and therefore, a part of that was he had to oppose false teachers. And so he saw Paul as a false teacher. So he opposed Paul so much to the point that he decided that he was going to drag Paul before Gallio, the proconsul. If you remember Acts 18, there you have the judgment seat you have the proconsul. You have the, the Christians who are dragged before this proconsul. You have the Jews who did that. And then around there are the Greeks. And so you have this sort of riot taking place. And, and the Jewish people are, are yelling out, this man, Paul, Paul is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So just imagine this scene. Gallio, the proconsul, didn't care about the Jewish complaints, probably because there were so many uh, Jewish riots taking place across the Roman world. They were just kind of sick of it. And so he said back to Sosthenes and to the Jewish people, I refuse to be a judge of your religion. And so then there's this chaos. We don't really know exactly what happened, but somehow in the chaos, Sosthenes 
was seized and he was beaten. So here you have an unbeliever who's seized and he's beaten. And God used that. And then at some point, the gospel coming into his life to change his heart and his mind. So look in 1 Corinthians 1.1. There it says, Sosthenes is called a what? He's a brother. So at some point from Acts 18 to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, at some point, God changed his life. And what changed his life? It was apostolic doctrine. The fact that you can't be saved by good works. It's only by grace through faith. He believed that and he submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So apostolic doctrine is the foundation for the church and it's what changes us. And so the first element of the biblical church is the foundation of the church is apostolic doctrine. And then the second element of a biblical church is the owner of the church is God. The owner of a church is God. Look at verse two. To the church of God that is in Corinth. So it's the church of God. Who owns the church? Many times we say things like, you know, my church and I know what we mean by that. We're just trying to identify that's the church we go to. But, but who actually owns the church? Well, no person on earth owns the church. Jesus said, oh, I don't have it up here. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build what? My church. So Jesus said the church was his. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood, and therefore God owns the church. In fact, look over in 1 Corinthians 3, three chapters over, 1 Corinthians 3. Paul made it clear in this chapter who owns the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 9. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The field, the building are metaphors for the church. And Notice he says, who owns them? God. God is the one who owns the church. So what does it mean for us then that God owns the church? Well, it means he gets to call the shots. It means that the church isn't about me. It's not about what I want. It's not that I come in here and I say, well, this is my church, and I think it should go according to what I think should happen. No, I say, this is God's church. Church is about God and we should submit to him and steward his church well. Have you ever loaned something out to someone and it came back in terrible condition? Maybe you, maybe you loaned out something to a neighbor. Maybe you have like a, think about like a grill in your backyard and your neighbor's like, oh no, my grill's got problems. And so you loan your grill out and your neighbor takes your grill and they use all your gas and they bring it back and it's dripping with grease. How would you feel about that? You might be a little offended by that. Why is that? Well, because you own the grill. Like you expected that person to steward that grill. I think about a time when someone let me drive their very nice car so I could go on a date with Dana. That was a lot of fun. How do you think I drove that car? Very carefully. I went slowly. When I went to the parking lot, I parked away from everybody else. I didn't touch too many buttons in there because I didn't know what they did. They want to mess the car up. I didn't bring any drinks or food inside that car because I had a responsibility to steward what someone else 
owned. And it's with that stewardship mentality that we, we look at each other and we look at God's church and we say, we want to steward what Christ purchased with his own blood. So who owns the church? And sometimes people think in churches, well, it's, it's, the, it's those who give the most money. No. Or it's those who are there the longest. No. It doesn't matter how much you give in relation to your rights. It doesn't matter how long you are in relation to your rights. There's only one person who has the right to run the church, and that's Jesus Christ. Remember a number of years ago, I had a person in the church who wanted to influence um, who was going to be hired for a certain position. This person came up to me and said, I've been at the church for this long, therefore I think I should be the one to help determine who gets hired for this position. No, that's not how it works. What we recognize is that God is the one who owns the church. Now, some people think, well, what about elders? Don't they own the church? The answer is no. I don't own the church. This isn't Pastor Ben's church. It's not even Pastor's Ro- Pastor Roger's church. Pastor Roger started the church over 40 years ago. I think we should honor men like that. Actually, we, I think we should thank men like that. But he doesn't own the church. Elders serve as under-shepherds and are to steward what Christ, the chief shepherd, owns. Acts 20, 28. Paul, to the elders, the pastors at Ephesus, said this, wrote this. Watch out for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, or elders, or pastors, different words for the same office, to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with his own son, with the blood of his own son. So who owns the church? It's the one who died for her and bought her with his blood. And so when we think about the church, as elders, as we think about the church, this is not our church, this is not your church, this is Christ's church. And we want to steward his church well. We look at people around here. We don't say, oh, that's just a person who comes to my church. That's a person for whom Christ died. And he loved them enough to die for them. How can I love that person as well? In fact, that's, I think it's what you see. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.16. This is how he wants us to think. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, God's holy temple, place, God's holy people, and that God's spirit dwells in you. So Paul was speaking about the church. I'm sorry, I said second. I meant 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3.16. So he's saying in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that God is the one who owns the church. In fact, he, he has his signature on it. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 17. 1 Corinthians 3.17. If anyone destroys God's possessive, God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In other words, you are the church. So what does it mean for us that God owns the church? I think it means that we must steward what God owns. And I think with this comes a call to action and a warning. The call to action is to love his church. Remember, the church are the people for whom Christ died, because Christ died to save his church, we must steward his church well by loving his church. And so the question is, how are we loving the church? 
And, and we're not asking, how do you get along with the people that you are friends with in the church or the people that you've known for many years? The question is, how are we stewarding the love of the church, the church that Christ owns? Let me just ask a few questions to help us think about this. Are you showing love to those in this church? I mean, are you looking around this church and thinking, how can I love these people? When is the last time you walked up to someone you don't know and you invited them into your life? Maybe for a game night or maybe for a dinner at your home. When's the last time you asked someone how you can pray for them? How have you reached out to some of these new people? We have a lot of people that have been coming new in the past year, right? How have we, as people who are the old timers, how have you reached out to those people and invited them into your life? That's what we're talking about. We're stewarding the church. We're saying, this is God's people, and I want to take what God has given to us. We want to steward that for his glory. I think it's a call to action, but also it's a warning. The truth that God owns the church also means that he will hold us accountable for how we care for his church. I mean, look at 1 Corinthians 3, 17. Isn't that what that means? I mean, since God owns the church, he's saying, if you hurt my church, I will hurt you. Wow, that's serious right there, isn't it? God will destroy him? I mean, there are going to be problems in our church. The Corinthian church had a lot of friction, a lot of problems. On the one hand, they didn't love people enough, some people enough, to confront them in their sin. On the other hand, they, they fought about differences and divided over issues. This past week, I got to listen to a guy in person at the master seminary named Alistair Begg. You know who that is? That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. He was talking about how early on in his ministry, he had a group of people in his church who were dividing over schooling choices. And so people were using the, the choice that they had for school to basically say, this is what our church is like. So if you're like, you know, if you, if you have the same schooling choice as us, then you're kind of in the in group. Everyone else is kind of the out group. Our church should be defined by this. And, and they started harming people in the church by having these groupy conversations, by excluding people, by talking negative about how other people were choosing to, to school their kids. And in the end, they, they viewed church as a place that was owned by them, and they got to define who was in, who was out. And he says it really hurt their church. And one of the things he was talking about, and it struck my mind as I was thinking about this text, he talked about how they had to come together and say, no, Christ owns the church. And there's going to be people that have different schooling choices and different backgrounds than you. I mean, think about the Corinthian church. Think about the diverse backgrounds they had. I mean, all these people from all different places, the unity they had wasn't, oh, we're all Jewish, or, oh, we all used to you know, worship in the temple, now we're saved, or we're all rich um, Corinthians, or we're all poor slaves. That wasn't the unity they had. It was in Christ. And honestly, one of the things I really love that God has given to our church the past number of years is we have, even in the schooling choices, we have people that have some of their kids in public school, some in charter school, some in homeschool, some in different types of homeschools. I think that's great. That's great. It's a God bringing different people with different backgrounds into our church body because our, our, our unity is found around Christ. He owns the church. And therefore, we are to steward the church by loving those within his church. And then last, and don't worry, we will move this one along. 
the definition of the church. The third element of the church is how it's defined. It's defined as a local assembly of covenanting saints. A local assembly of covenanting saints. Look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, how would you define the church? If I were to say, write down a definition. Well, there's probably a lot of passages we could go to 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 define the church. But here, I think he gives a pretty good definition. He says, you are the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So, So first, notice one of the definitions that he gives is that they are a local assembly in Corinth. The, the word for church, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which describes a group that is called out to assemble together. So it, it's a local assembly, people gathering together. So the church is, is not an organization around the world run by a pope in Rome. The church is not a building somewhere. This is not the church. The church is not an amazing social club with strategic marketing gimmicks and really good coffee. Although we have pretty good coffee here, but but that's not the church. The church is not you by yourself on the couch with Jesus. That's not the church. Now we have some people who are sick at home. Thank you for staying home if you have symptoms. But that's not the church. It's a local assembly. Look at verse number one. He says the church, the assembly That is in Corinth. So where's the church? It's in Corinth. But wait, Acts 8.1 says that there's a church in Jerusalem. Acts 13.1 says there's there's a church in Antioch. We are Lighthouse Bible Church. It's a church in Simi. So, So where is the church? Well, there's not just one church. There are thousands of local assemblies all over the world. And the point is, The visible church on earth is a local assembly. This is a church. Now, you might think to yourself, well, well, didn't Jesus say that I will build my church? Like, so that, what church is that? Where's that church at, you know? Or Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter five, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, So what's that church? Well, that's the invisible Universal church. And that church includes all believers from the time of Christ's ascension until the rapture of the church. So the invisible church includes Paul. It includes Aquila, Priscilla, Martin Luther, William, Carrie, millions of other people who are in heaven now. The church is in heaven right now. That's the invisible church. And also the invisible church includes all those around the globe who are in local churches like ours. So there's the invisible church and there's the visible church. So back, in fact, look at verse two. You can see this, verse two. He says, to the church of God. So there's this local assembly to the assembly of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And then he broadens it out to the invisible church together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the invisible church are all the saints Christ has redeemed from his ascension to the rapture. And a local assembly, a local assembly is the visible manifestation of that invisible church. So the church in Corinth was a local assembly. And we're not going to go through all this, but you could see as you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that that local assembly 
followed apostolic teaching. They had elders. They had deacons. They preached the word. They baptized. They did the Lord's table. They, they gave of their first fruits to support and spread the word. So they, their, their church composed the elements of what it means to be a church. So let's talk about a couple of things. What does it mean? What is it? Uh, what is a church not? What is a church not? A church is not sitting in front of a TV listening to a preacher. And I say that because I think probably one of the most damaging things that were taught in many churches in the last two years is that right there. That, that it's okay to sit at your house, symptom-free, put that one in there, sit in your couch, and you can have church on your couch. I mean, some pastors have even, even suggested this was the future of the church. That's a terrible message. I mean, think about it. even the name church. It's an assembly. You're not assembling on your couch looking at a TV, even if it's Zoom. That's not an assembly. And again, if you have symptoms, stay home, get healthy. But then come back to church and obey Christ. A church also is not a small group. It's not gathering with a small group. There are many churches who preach that as well. I heard a sermon by a preacher who basically said that as well. He says, you know, this basically churches of the future are going to be small groups. But I, there's a couple of questions I have with that. Does that small group follow apostolic doctrines? So are, is there preaching? Is someone preaching the word, expositing the word? Is there covenant membership? Is there church discipline taking place? Are there qualified elders and deacons in that small group? Are they baptized? Baptizing, I should say. Are they taking the Lord's table? A small group that reads the Bible, prays, and fellowship is not a church. I think small groups are good. We have small groups, small group Bible studies on Tuesday nights. So I think it's a good thing for a church. I think it's part of a healthy church that you're fellowshipping in that way. But small groups are not a church. Now, you might think to yourself, well, but Pastor Ben, didn't they meet in a home? Wasn't that home a small group? Well, they did meet in a home. But go to 1 Corinthians 14. Notice this. This is very interesting. 1 Corinthians 14. And again, these kind of things, we could go through other passages in Scripture, but we're kind of confining ourselves to this book. The church of Corinth was not a bunch of small groups meeting in homes. They did meet in homes, probably in many different homes. But look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. The scripture reads, when therefore the whole church comes together. There's a lot going on in this text here, but Paul was addressing orderly worship for the church of Corinth. He's saying that when they all gather together, so, so it's not like, oh, you're all these small groups. It's not, there's a time as a church where you're gathering to worship the Lord. And I'm going to be clear, starting a church in your home or having a church in a home is not wrong. In fact, it could be the best option in a location that you're at. Sometimes it's the only option a person has. But being in a home with other believers does not constitute a church. In fact, go to 1 Corinthians 11. Let me show you this. It's just one other place, and then we have to start closing out the service. Five times in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the words, come together. So he's talking about the church, when you come together, when you come together, says that over and over. And he's talking about the local church all gathering for the purpose of worshiping and taking the Lord's table. And then look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two. He says, what 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Again, we're kind of pulling this out of context, so it's really hard to understand what's going on. But do notice this. People had houses. Well, especially the wealthy ones. Wealthy ones had houses. And he says, your houses are for fellowship, for eating, and for drinking. And, and, and do that there. Like, yeah, d- go have that fellowship there. But he's making a distinction. There's a difference between what you do in your home with a group of believers and what the church does when it gathers. Gathering as a church is a time to worship Christ. And there should be a difference. There should be a difference in reverence. And there should be a difference in what you do. And that's what he's saying there. There's a distinction with the church, with, with people in a church just gathering in their home and with the church gathering as God's people. So the church is not just a group of Christians in a home. It's an assembly of covenanting saints. We don't really have time to go into this this week. We'll look at this next week. But you're assembling as, as saints who are in covenant with Christ and with each other. It's not just a ragtag group of people that, oh, let's get together this Sunday. It's people who says, I'm, I'm in covenant with the Lord. He's made a covenant with me, the new covenant, and I'm in covenant with these people as well, these group of people. So we're going to have to end with this. Look at verse number two. The church is made up of saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. To be a saint means to be a holy one. So who is it that makes you holy. Look at that verse there. What does it say? Sanctified in what? In your own works? And what you do? No, in Christ Jesus. The only way a person can be declared holy is by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. The eternal, holy son of God humbled himself to be the incarnate one, Jesus Christ. He lived a holy life. He died on the cross as the holy one who took our sin upon himself. Then he he rose as the holy one who defeated death. And so the promise of the scripture is if you turn from your sin, you call upon Jesus as Lord, he will gift you the holiness of Jesus. He, he He will make you his holy one. Just because you're here in this room, just because even if you're a member of our church, doesn't mean you're a holy one. Doesn't make you holy. Doesn't make you a saint. Only Jesus can do that. And Jesus gifts that to people who call upon him to rescue them. Question for us, even who attend every week, is are you a saint? Are you a holy one? Again, not because of anything you do, but because you're trusting that Jesus is the holy one who took away the sins of the world. Are you trusting and the grace of Jesus Christ. And church, I think it's good for us to even consider, are we committed to apostolic doctrine? Are we committed personally to, to reading the scripture, to knowing apostolic doctrine, and having that change our thinking, having that change our marriages, having that change our church? And, and are we caring for God's church as stewards of what he has purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. God owns the church. The foundation of the church is apostolic doctrine, and the church is an assembly of covenanting saints. God has given us a wonderful gift. Let's steward it for him. Let's pray.